Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Everyone's life is driven by something. What drives your life? Many are driven by things like guilt, resentment, anger, fear, materialism, and the need for approval. There are other forces that can drive your life, but all lead to the same dead end. Unused potential, unnecessary stress, and an unfulfilled life. Well, the Bible has a remedy. St. Paul said to the Ephesians, Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the Master wants. And the Master himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we meet now in the Archbishop's Corner, where Archbishop Leonard Blair helps us think life through and search out the truth as we find the right way to faith. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for sharing some time with us in the Archbishop's Corner this morning. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Well, today we celebrate, besides the third Sunday of Easter, we celebrate what's known as World Book Night an annual celebration of books and reading. Now, while most everyone agrees that reading is vital for a child's growth, many forget how important it is to read throughout our adult lives. World Book Night aims to change the way adults view reading by encouraging them to take the time to read during the night. You are an avid reader and history enthusiast. Do we put the two together and find that our Archbishop enjoys reading about history? Oh, yes, I always have. I majored in history in college, and of course, living in Europe those years working in Rome, I've always been very interested in history. And uh, obviously, books are a great revelation of education and experience of different cultures, times, and peoples. And uh, of course, we know that God has chosen to speak to us through the Word incarnate in the Bible as the book. So, yeah, language, writing, books are a very important part of human culture, of the spiritual beings that we are. And, of course, today, replaced a lot of times by um, electronic forms. But nevertheless, in whatever form it is, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Well, tomorrow we remember the day back in 2005 when Pope Benedict XVI was inaugurated as the 265th Pope of the Church. After his resignation in 2013, he held the unique title of Pope Emeritus up until his passing last December. The world will probably remember him as an academic, a pope with a keen intellect, what do you feel were the, the greatest contributions that Pope Benedict XVI made to the Church? Well, I think at a time, a particular time of um, uncertainty and of tremendous uh, spiritual uh, and intellectual and cultural changes for uh, confronting people of faith and, and the Church, I think uh, Pope uh, Benedict was a very articulate spokesman for the Word, for Christ the Word, uh, for the, the Word of, of human faith and reason. He was a superb teacher, and I mean, people have compared his homilies uh, to those of the ancient Church Fathers, mm. uh, so rich in theology, but also so accessible to people. You know, somebody said something once uh, when he was Pope that I remember, and I, of course, like anything, it makes it's an exaggeration to make a point, but they said, you know, sometimes I think People came to see Pope John Paul, but they came to hear Pope Benedict. 
Now, of course, both popes were very articulate uh, in their homilies and such. But it is true. There was something about Pope Benedict's homilies, what he said, that was very... uh, very moving and very meaningful, and I think had a good influence on a lot of people. And and applied to life as we live it today, huh? Well, of course, yes. I mean, the Word of God is unchanging, and it's, you know, Christ the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and Christ is the Word of God incarnate. But obviously, we're not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We, with the uh, passing of history and the challenges of every age, the questions, the culture, the, uh, the technology, everything uh, changes But uh, the Word of God does not change. Tuesday is the Feast of St. Mark the Evangelist, the author of the Second Gospel, patron saint of notaries. He wrote the Gospel in Greek for the Gentile converts to Christianity. Mark fulfilled in his life what every Christian is called to do, that is, proclaim to all people the good news that is the source of salvation. Unlike St. Mark, we are not going to write a Gospel. So what can we do in our daily lives to be like St. Mark and proclaim the good news? Well, may I go back a step and say a wonderful thing for all of us to do is to sit down prayerfully and to read the Gospel of St. Mark. Mm -hmm. I think so many people know of the Gospel from snippets here and there, or, you know, hopefully if they're going to church, they hear it on a regular basis. But even that sometimes these days is questionable uh, about the number of people who are faithfully attending church. But my point is simply that You know, the Gospels are meant to be proclaimed in the Church, they're meant to be studied, but they're also meant to be prayed over and read by believing Christians. And I can't think of a a better spiritual thing to do to us and our listeners uh, on the Feast of St. Mark is to sit down and read his Gospel. And it's not uh, so long that it's, you know, it's not like reading uh, War and Peace or something, uh, a huge novel. Uh, And to do it prayerfully is is a wonderful thing. And when you say prayerfully, you, you you mean take the time to read a portion and then to pray over it, meditate on it, and, and hopefully apply it, ask how it applies to your own life now. Well, yes, thoughtfully and prayerfully, and, but to, to actually read. You know, God's Word has a power. God, This is the inspired Word of God. And, you know, as someone has said, the whole Bible is really only one Word, and that Word has a name, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And so when you're reading the Gospel— uh, if you want to have faith, if you're disposed and open to the grace of that God wants to give you, reading it can be an occasion for that grace of God to open your heart and mind and soul. And on Thursday, April 27th, is National Take Your Sons and Daughter to Work Day. So don't be surprised if the pastoral center is a little more crowded and noisier than usual. Exposing girls and boys to what a parent does during the workday is important. Do you feel... Um, a good role model is important to the success of children in the real world. This is an important day to show the importance, the value of hard work, for instance, for a parent. So take them to work. Take your children to work. Well, I hope you won't think I'm cynical in what I'm going to say, but these days it's good to, it would be something to get the adults to go to work. <laughs> I mean, we know that uh, it's becoming very hard to find people who actually want to go to work and who prefer to stay at home. And now, what I'm going to say is not a religious thing. It's not a truth of the faith. But I do think that uh, certainly, uh, there, in my opinion, my humble opinion, there is uh, something to be said for uh, getting out into the world and being with other people and interacting in the work that we do, no matter who we are. I know now it's beginning to be more the case where employers are beginning to say, you need to come to work. Here at the Archdiocese, we've said that, that if you have a job here, you have to, you have to come to work. 
So it's funny, you know, bring your child to work. <laughs> we got to get the parents to come to work, yeah, too. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's true of everybody. There are situations I know of, even before COVID, where people worked from home, and I'm not saying that that's bad. But normally, in the normal situation of things, uh, it's. I think it's good for people to be together. I don't think just locked up at home is necessarily a healthy thing for some people. So we'll see. But, uh, yeah, if the kids can get something out of that, that's wonderful. I highly agree with you. It's so important that we build community in the workplace and work with each other and bounce ideas off of one another. And then, therefore, we become a much more creative force when we work together on things. On Friday, we celebrate Arbor Day. When J. Sterling Morton founded Arbor Day back in 1872, his idea was simple, just set aside a special day for tree planting. Although Arbor Day has been celebrated for almost 150 years, its relevance today is as strong as it was when the day was first celebrated. Arbor Day helps remind us of the beauty of nature as well as our responsibility to care for the beauty of God's creation. Besides planting a tree, is there a simple way you'd recommend people observe Arbor Day? Well, I think we have to be, we have to balance things, you know. We have to, uh, you know, there, there was a time when people were very uncaring about hewing down everything, you know, and, and clearing the land of everything. Now we uh, have a very strong reaction uh, where people uh, sometimes don't want to do anything to disturb nature. And like, like everything in life, we have to find the right balance. But I do think it's a healthy and spiritual thing for all of us to have a connection to the natural world, which we are part of, of course. And to insulate ourselves too much from that is not a good thing. You know, now, uh, I even remember uh, reading uh, a couple of times now that children who, are, who play outside and are exposed to dust and things or even to pets when they're, when they're infants are less likely to have allergy problems when they're older. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that if you, if you become so hermetically sealed against the natural world, it really is not for your uh, well-being and health. So, I mean, we're part of this created order, and, you know, we have to be responsible stewards of it, too. We have to be sensible. And, of course, today there are grave concerns about uh, uh, what is happening in nature because of our interventions. So I, it's just very important for us to, to take time. I know Pope Francis has spoken about this strongly. And not only him. You know, sometimes people think that he's the one to do this. But his predecessors, uh, Pope Benedict and Pope St. John Paul, I know, and perhaps even longer than that. But those two, for sure, I know, did speak about this, about the need we have to be responsible stewards of creation. And even appreciate it so that maybe maybe this Arbor Day is a, a wonderful time, if it's a beautiful day, to just sit under a tree and take a nap. Wouldn't that be a dream come true? Well, I don't know that you should be napping. You should be doing your <laughs> priestly work. Well, in the heat of the day, you know, have lunch under a tree, take a brief siesta, enjoy the, the beauty of God's created world for you, for me. And it's only April. It's not that hot. We've had some hot days so far this April, haven't we? Yes. Let's now take a look at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis drawn from some of his writings. So I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts. This is taken from Pope Francis's Evangelii Gaudium and is called May Your Lent Flow Into Easter. The Pope says, There are Christians whose lives seem like Lent without Easter. I realize that we do not experience joy in the same way in every phase of life, particularly in moments of great difficulty. Joy adapts and changes, 
but it always endures even as a tiny glimmer of light. It is a light born of our certainty that we are infinitely loved. Understand the grief of those who have endured great suffering, but we must let the joy of faith awaken within us as a quiet yet firm trust, even amid the greatest distress. Any thoughts, Archbishop, on this? Well, the only thing I can think of is what Paul says, St. Paul, that we are people who do not grieve as with we, we were without hope. But uh, I don't know. I know Pope Francis often talks about that. I, he must have known a lot of gloomy people in his life because he always uh, talks about people who seem not to be joyful. That's not been my experience. I have found that the people I've associated with, the people I've worked with for the most part, are joyful people. So we have to, uh, you know, joy is a, is a great uh, gift uh, of God. We have every reason to be joyful, even when we face our crosses and our challenges. And uh, I would certainly agree with the Pope that uh, uh, we, we have to uh, have the joy of faith with a quiet and firm trust, even when things uh, may go wrong. Even in times of great suffering. Have that joy of faith. Let's look at our gospel now on this third Sunday of Easter. And today's gospel is taken from the 24th chapter of Luke. And after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with the Archbishop asking for your thoughts. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him. Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven gathered together, and those who were with them. The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Archbishop, this is the famous On the Road to Emmaus account. What strikes you about this gospel account? Well, this is a very, very appropriate uh, gospel uh, at the time when the church in the United States is uh, celebrating uh, a Eucharistic revival, wanting to uh, reinstill and reinforce and reinvigorate in all of us, clergy and people alike, an appreciation and faith in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Because it's precisely this encounter with Jesus on the road these disciples have after the resurrection that leads them uh, to have him uh, explain the scriptures to them on the road so that their hearts were on fire with this message that uh, of, of the scriptures. And then they act, uh, leading up to the breaking of the bread uh, at the meal in which their eyes were opened to see that it really was Jesus himself. And of course, the breaking of the bread is the most ancient way of in the church in scriptural times of talking about the Eucharist, of celebrating the Eucharist. You know, take this, eat, this is my body, take this and drink, this is my blood. And it was that that opened their eyes uh, to, to uh, what uh, had happened and, and who he was. And so it is for us, the liturgy of the word at Mass, followed by the liturgy of the Eucharist, which really is one liturgy, uh, not two, uh, but to to, to uh, aspects of it. And, um, you know, we bishops are just so concerned at the significant number of people who claim to be Catholic, who even practice their faith to a certain extent, but they don't go to Sunday Mass. And uh, this is uh, is cause of concern and a prayer on our part that we, we want to encourage that. So this gospel, I mean, you can't say it more clearly than this about what it represents and how important it is. Now, these two disciples recognized Jesus over the breaking of the bread. This, this certainly tells us something about the importance of the Eucharist in our lives today. In terms of, of the real presence of Christ, what can he do to open our eyes today to, to not only his presence, but to the reality of his presence in terms of what he would like us to become or be through his presence received in the Eucharist? Well, we're, you know, every baptized person is sent forth to proclaim the gospel by word and deed, by example, by prayer, into the world. Christ's mission is a saving, salvific mission, calling everyone to repentance and faith, and with the gift of joy and life and everything else, hope and the promise of eternal glory. And our, by receiving the Eucharist, by participating in his own divine life through the sacraments, we are empowered then to do these things in the world. And uh, that's our mission. That's, our, that's what we're, we're called to be and to do. We're not just called to be saved personally by ourselves, but we're called to, to be part of the link of a great chain that goes back to the apostles and then continue until the end of time, handing on the faith, handing on not something that's dead or in a, just in a book, but handing on the living faith with the living Christ. The, these two disciples said, we had hoped, that is, hope in the past tense. There was a time when we believed there was a time when hope lived within our hearts. We had hoped in the past. When God lives only in the past, hope dies in the present. Don't you believe that? So God must live in our lives in the present in order for hope to live, correct? Well, that's yes, certainly true that Christ is being uh, the, the sacrifice of the cross and the Christ's resurrection from the dead is a living reality at Mass. It is, it is present there. It's not just about the past. In some mysterious manner, Christ, you know, he still bears, when he appeared, still bears the nail marks 
uh, in the wound in his side, that Christ continues in some mystical, uh, mysterious way uh, to be present in all of his mysteries to us and will be so until the end of time. Let's look at some questions that have been submitted. But before we get to the questions of our listeners, what, what do you think will happen to church attendance when the COVID-19 restrictions end? They're, they're, they're ending now. But I'm asking this because Bishop Thomas Tobin of Providence, Rhode Island, is encouraging Catholics to develop plans for evangelization. The bishop wonders, quote, when our churches reopen for public worship, Will the faithful have grown accustomed to watching the Mass on TV or online and think that it's not necessary to attend in person? Or will they have missed the sense of community, their parish family, and realize that virtual participation can never replace the grace of being personally present? Do you agree, Archbishop, with Bishop Tobin, who thinks that those re-energized in their faith by again having the sacraments should plan on using that enthusiasm to reach out to Catholics who have drifted away from attending Mass? Well, first, let me say that uh, I've thought of the COVID restrictions as having been long gone. Uh, you know, I, I mean, they, I, I think of them as having passed away, at least in archdiocese. Interestingly, though, I was at a priest gathering the other day uh, and was, well, let's put it this way. The discussion was such that I think I need to tell our priests that as far as I'm concerned, there are no restrictions anymore mm-hmm. uh, imposed by COVID. Now, if an individual person comes to Mass and they want to wear a mask still because of a concern about their health, I'm not going to say that they're wrong to do that if they so wish. But we're, Or even a priest if he has some uh, medical condition. But we're not, I don't see us being obliged for these things anymore. And let's pray to God that they won't have to be brought back again uh, for some other reason. Mm. But um, as far as, uh, I think it's, it's not just about Mass. It's about a lot of things that people got out of the, you know, we talked earlier about work. Maybe some people think of Mass too much like they think of work, that it's some kind of obligation or burden, and just like they don't want to go back to the office but whether, rather work at home, so they just as soon watch Mass on TV and not go. But uh, that, that, just as we said in, in ordinary civil life, that really is, is not the, the way to, to be, that we have to be together, all the more so for, for church. So... You know, on the one hand, we've always, as you well know, since you do it, broadcast mass on TV for people who are shut in their homes or hospitals or or nursing uh, facilities because of age or sickness, and that's a great service. But for able-bodied people, uh, there's no substitute for for going to church, being the family of God together, for actually receiving Holy Communion and not watching it being distributed on TV. So, uh, yeah, that's our hope and prayer that we will all be... uh, uh, you know, and that that it'll even be better than it was before COVID, because mass attendance, you know, is not at all what it should be in the archdiocese. Patty from Harrington has a question for you. Patty says, "There was a time when the cultural consensus was that children and marriage were a package deal. Now there is a growing trend among couples to rule out childbearing. My son and his girlfriend have stated they do not want kids and don't plan to marry anytime soon, if at all." How important is marriage when you have been with someone for many years and plan to stay with them for life, even if you do not wish for kids? Well, Patty, I feel for you because this is uh, really an unnatural sentiment that is contrary to nature and to grace uh, because uh, human sexuality and marriage were created by God uh, for the 
uh, you know, to be fruitful and multiply, as the, the book of Genesis tells us, uh, uh, and a sacrament, to, 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 to say that you have no responsibility or desire to hand on life to a future generation and no desire or responsibility to enter into a lifelong uh, commitment of love and fidelity uh, in the sacrament of marriage, that is very um, uh, distressing and very troubling. And I know it's not just uh, in your family, but there are a lot of young people who are kind of tuning out uh, of, um, I don't want to say the human race, that's too strong, but about the... the, the uh, the, the ordinary natural order of, of life and the continu- con, uh, continuity of life in the world. So uh, what do you say to them? Oh, my goodness, at this point, I don't know what you, what you can say except to bear uh, witness to the, uh, to the uh, it's not just about faith, but it's even about just uh, being human uh, and humanity. I, I'm really at a loss to, to give you some advice except to certainly pray for them and, and hope that they have a change of heart. But, you know, it is true that with the collapse of the fidelity of marriage in the United States and the ease of divorce and breakup and all the problems attendant to modern life, you know, there there aren't the, the percentage uh, of, of people where there's a man and a woman living as husband and wife in marriage in a home with kids under the age of 18. I think I mentioned that statistic on one of these programs is dismally low in the United States. You know, this is... Um, and it can lead to the disintegration of a culture. You know, if you don't, yeah. if you're not willing to, to believe in the future, if you're not willing to believe in family, if you're not be- willing to believe in children, uh, then uh, a culture can just die, and that's a distinct possibility. Wouldn't you say it should be the case that success breeds success? So that if a young person is living in a family where mother and father love one another, care for one another, care for the children, are doing things actively with their children to support this family unit, that that should breed a desire on the part of the young people growing up in that family to model that same relationship within their family or want that kind of relationship, for instance, when they get married. Well, it should, but let's not underestimate the fact that young people, children today, are no longer formed just by their parents and family life. In fact, far from it. That, uh, you know, by the time they're old enough to reach the button, they're being formed by the Internet and a lot of things and uh, all kinds of things outside the home. And so, plus we live in a country where, in a culture where we're told that, you know, we should be uh, free to do whatever we want, when we want, how we want, and there are all kinds of temptations to many things and and a definition of freedom that is sometimes frightening. Yeah, I mean, even the best of parents can sometimes be bereft by the by the what happens to their their uh, children uh, who who follow a path that they never intended or never really you know gave them, but but it's something from outside. Mary from Hartford says, "I'm new to my parish, but I have been trying to become more active and volunteer as much as possible." A fellow parishioner asked if I'd like to participate in something called a mystagogy session. Can you explain what that is? Well, it does sound kind of strange, doesn't it? It sounds like <laughs> something that with a crystal ball <laughs> in a booth at a county fair. <laughs> mystagogy is, is simply, as a follow-up to Easter, it's the, how can we say, a, a, a prayerful 
discussion or, or get together or uh, to, to, to understand more deeply the mysteries uh, of the faith that were celebrated at Easter, you know, the, of baptism and, and confirmation of the Holy Eucharist, of the life of the Church. Uh, so it's, mystagogy shouldn't be mystifying. It does sound that way, but it's really not, not meant to be that. Paul from North Canaan says, Now that we are in the season of Easter, I notice there are no longer Old Testament readings during weekday or Sunday Masses. Why is this? Well, Paul, it's simply because at Easter time, we focus uh, completely on the uh, early, earliest church's experience in the Acts of the Apostles uh, about uh, the, the faith. Uh, so it, it, this is one of the few times, of, in fact, I think it's the only time of year where all the readings are from the New Testament, uh, but it's just because of the uh, celebration of Easter. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord God, we continue to rejoice in the joy of Easter and the mercy uh, that's been poured out through the dying and rising of Christ the Lord. And we know that we encounter Christ in, uh, our, in the sacraments, especially in the Most Holy Eucharist. And we pray fervently that we may grow ever more faithful uh, and ever more deep in our understanding of the reality of this gift of, the, of Christ's body and blood to us, and we pray for the many people who are not attending Mass, that they will, for whatever reason, that they will return to the practice of the faith and receive this uh, heavenly bread without which, as Jesus tells us, we cannot have life within ourselves. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week. Until then, enjoy this week. Thank you. Thank you.